So we're going to take a, a few weeks. We just kind of came out of the wilderness topic. I don't know that many of us came out of the wilderness itself, but we're going to take a, a few weeks here coming up, and we're going to be talking about the importance of truth and the importance that truth plays in our lives. Today, I want to kick us off by um, kind of talking about the darker part of like how important it is for us to stay away from lies. Uh, we said it a couple of times uh, in the songs that we were singing. When we buy into a lie, when we believe a lie, it's not just that our brain stops working effectively. When we believe a lie, there's something spiritual that takes place, and we actually empower the liar in our lives. So the enemy is always floating in over our ears, whispering stuff to you, whispering lies about you, lies about your spouse, lies about your abilities, your mission, your calling, lies about your church, lies about your government, because he is wanting us to assume something wrong and start building our foundation on a cracked and crumbling structure. Um, but today, I want to start off by, uh, Liz, will you pop up uh, my keynote? Oh, thank you so much. Are you hallucinating? I'm not hallucinating, I don't think. Um, mental image. The low this week is going to be 55. Fall is coming. Thank you, sweet, merciful Lord. Now imagine yourself, you're in a car. The windows are down. That fall sun is streaming through like multicolored leaves and your favorite song just came on the radio, and you look up and you see a speed limit sign, and it says 80. Oh. Your, your uh, foot goes all the way to the floor, and you're screaming down a country road. You know, you're taking turns, and then all of a sudden, wild guess what you see in your rearview mirror. <laughs> Blue lights. <laughs> and your heart sinks. By the way, the other day, I got pulled over going 75 in a 70, and the officer was like, I'm going to take it easy on you. Thank you, sir. I appreciate you taking it easy on me. See, the funny thing is when you look up and you see a speed limit sign going 80 down a country road, you try to explain to the officer, but sir, it's not my fault. Your speed limit sign told me to do 80. Do you think that the officer cares what your perception of the law is? No, it is his job to enforce the actual law, not laws that we've made up in our head. Have you ever seen that? Who in the world would think that an actual speed limit would be, uh, would be 80 miles an hour? Um, see, I go through my life assuming that my senses are feeding me accurate information. That's wrong. But it, we, our senses are reliable enough to where if I see a chair sitting in front of me and I go sit down in that chair, I'm reasonable, reasonably sure that that chair is going to support me. I have sat down in some chairs that betrayed my faith when I sat down in them. But for the most part, unless you have like some schizoid disorder, which I still love you if you do, or you take random Tic Tacs from strangers, usually we can trust that our senses are not lying to us until our senses lie to us. Now that, that's the problem. When, when my brain is not working correctly, there is no system that I have in my body to counteract that. If I start believing a lie and I'm under a delusion, I don't know that I'm delusional. There's a book called A Beautiful Mind that got later adapted into a, a movie about a guy, a real guy named John Nash. And the movie is a, it's a movie. I suggest go read the book. 
um, mostly because it doesn't have Russell Crowe in the book. Um, but he was a, a mathematician, and he was treated, when he became an adult, uh, for something that they used to call paranoid schizophrenia. And this is not how this um, mental illness works, but in the movie, it is easy to portray it that he had, all, spoiler alert, in case you've not seen a movie that came out in the 90s, uh, he had all of these friends that you find out like halfway through were complete figments of his imagination. He really struggled with delusions of grandeur. grandeur. He thought he was working with the government. He thought everybody that had a red tie on was you know, secretly working with the Russians and out to get him. And it is easy to portray that, that break in his brain by making him see um, fictional people. So eventually, at the end of his life, started working with his mental illness, worked with uh, some decently good counselors and the garbage psychotropic drugs that they had back then. It's a miracle that he was alive. But eventually started teaching back at a university. And something that he worked in on the side, it wasn't even actually his main topic of study, something that he did on the side wound up getting him nominated to win a Nobel Peace Prize. So a guy from Geneva came to the college. Now remember, John Nash struggled with delusions of grandeur and thinking that he was working for these big uh, governments. The guy from the Nobel Peace Prize went up to him and was like, you know, Dr. Nash, you've been nominated to potentially be a recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And something that he does in the movie, I doubt that it actually happened in real life, but we won't worry about that. Guy said, you're gonna win a Nobel Peace Prize. He grabbed one of his students that he knew was real. He was like, do you see this man sitting in front of you? And she's like, yes. He's like, okay, go on. Because when your brain is telling you false information, how in the world do you counteract that? Well, we counteract that by doing exactly what John Nash did in the movie. Again, I don't think it actually happened, but it's a really good metaphor to how we combat deception in our lives. We have amazing people that we can trust in our lives and we invite them into our lives and we show them what our perception looks like through our own eyes. I'm thinking this about myself. What do you think? Now, if we have surrounded ourselves with people that we can trust, valuable uh, brothers and sisters in our lives, they have the ability to go, yep, you are perceiving that correctly. Your life is as messed up as you think it is. But probably, hey, I think that I am the worst uh, human imaginable. What's your opinion? More often than not, your friends are going to go, no, you are not viewing yourself correctly. Hey, I'm viewing my job. I'm viewing my church. I'm viewing my spouse this way. What do you think? Potentially, your friends are going to go, there is a flaw in your perception. See, our brains will take flawed information and develop flawed assumptions. And the most devastating thing about the way that our brains work is that after we develop a flawed assumption, our brains will just simply ignore all facts that are contrary to that flawed assumption. Our brains on its own, without the enemy doing a thing, will confirm the bias that we already have. If you already have a flawed assumption, your brain will warp, twist, manipulate data information coming into your head so that it only reinforces things that you already believe that are true. 
Now, it doesn't take you long to figure out that chain of reasoning can get you in a really dark place really quickly. Have you ever noticed that two completely different TV stations can take the same event with the same, same facts and construct two completely different narratives of what you're supposed to believe? Is it the problem with the facts? Is it the problem with the data? Usually not. Usually we already have a bias in our heads and all subsequent data coming in only confirms that. If you think that you're the ugliest person on earth, it doesn't matter how many mirrors you stand in front of. Your brain will manipulate the information that you're receiving. If you've ever had the experience to, to live life with someone that deals with anorexia, someone that weighs 90 pounds can stand in front of a mirror, you are the fattest slob in the world. And it's like, how do you see that? From my perspective, she's not fat or he's not fat. But from her perspective, her brain, his brain is manipulating that data so that you can only see what you want to see. Now, the struggle that I deal with sometimes, I, I don't deal with it too often anymore, but the lie that the enemy is always telling me is that my friends don't actually care about me. Now, I have learned and I've matured past that I say, well, it might not feel like my friends care about me today, but I know that that's not true. And I fight against that lie. But if I let that lie take root in my heart, everything that any of my friends ever say or do will only confirm the bias. We really don't like you, Justin. We, uh, we think that we're just putting up with you just so that we can get something good out of you. Now, when Jesus is talking to a, a group of people that were listening to him, he says something that, that I think is pretty amazing. He says, your father is the devil, and he is the father of all lies. And when the enemy's mouth is moving, he is speaking his native language. Now, the funny thing is, sometimes the devil will say true things to you, but he will say true things to you in order for you to assume a falsehood, some kind of lie. When Jesus was in the, the wilderness... The enemy was quoting scripture to Jesus in order to get him to misinterpret, all right? So when we say that the enemy is lying, it's not necessarily that he is giving you uh, flawed da data. The enemy lies because he is trying to warp, twist, and manipulate your worldview so that then he can take a vacation. He doesn't even have to mess with you anymore. Once he gets that flawed assumption planted in your brain about yourself, about your church, about your spouse, about your job, about your calling, about your ability, once he plants that false assumption in your head, he can go on holiday because you spend every waking moment reinforcing the lie that he has created. So he is the father of lies. Now, that is how our brains work without any spiritual input at all. That is just how the chemistry in our brains works. Now, layer on top of that that we have an enemy that is constantly trying to warp and deceive us. Again, it doesn't take us long to realize once we get stuck in that spiral of deception, there is hardly any way out, right? But what happens if we get caught in that spiral of deception? What happens when we get caught in a spiral of depression that we can't ever seem to claw our way out of? Well, the way we get out of it is by being connected with the body of Christ. The body of Christ, we might not look like it, we might not always act like it, but the people in this room are the greatest weapon against the force of darkness that the universe has ever experienced. Again, 
We might not look like it. We might not always act like that. But my ability to perceive truth in my life, in the church, about my spouse, about my uh, job, my ability, my, my giftings, my destiny, my ability to perceive truth sometimes is limited because you know what? We distance ourselves from each other. And we don't show people, hey, I think I'm believing a lie about myself. We are not honest enough with the people in this room to let them help us, nor do we ever get close enough to to give them an opportunity to see our flawed logic. Something that happened with John Nash, how how everybody realized that he was delusional. He, um, and this is super nerdy, I apologize. He was conducting a lecture on a potential proof of the Riemann hypothesis, which is if, you, if anybody here knows a proof for the Riemann hypothesis, you will literally get a million dollars. Is anybody? Nobody? Okay. It's really hard. It's really hard math. So he was conducting a lecture on that he has proven this millennial problem, like something that has not happened, like John Nash proved the Riemann hypothesis. And so he was lecturing on it, and he was just talking absolute garbage. And his friends were watching him do this lecture. Uh, Media, all the faculty was there, and he was ranting and raving about crazy stuff. And his friends checked him into a a mental hospital after that. So if we never get close enough to, to let our friends know the crazy thoughts that are rattling around in our head, nobody ever starts going, hmm, I think that you see yourself in a flawed way. Regardless of how many amazing experiences I've had in the presence of the Lord, and I have. I've been through some really amazing worship experiences. I've I've sat under sermons that were literally life-changing, but none of that stuff could ever compare with the impact that people in this family has made in my life. I have the foundation in the Lord that I have, not because of goosebumps, not because of the latest Hillsong CD, not because some anointed man of God somewhere put their oily hand on my head. I have the foundation in the Lord that I have because of people in this room. The stinky thing is that I have also been incredibly hurt by not people in this room, but in this room, I have been incredibly hurt. People that have proclaimed to love me the best have hurt me the worst. And so that creates a a funny tension in all of our hearts that we have a desire to reach out and connect with our church family, but at the same time, we want to guard ourselves and be protected. Pastor Paul, a couple of weeks ago, um, brought up um, a story about Elijah, and I kind of want to just re-point that out. It was in 1 Kings 19. Elijah was standing on Mount Carmel, and he literally saw fire come down out of heaven and consume like a sacrifice. And he saw this huge victory over this pagan cabal of cultists, had some weird like Heaven's Gate cult in uh, Israel that Elijah saw defeated because truth won out, right? And then Jezebel, the queen of Israel at the time, went up to him and was like, I'm going to kill you. Her language wasn't that flamboyant. She didn't have any special effects. All she did was walk up to a man of God and say, I'm going to kill you. Now, what happened is that Jezebel exposed a lie that Elijah had in his heart. 
And when she exposed that lie, everything that Elijah had built on that false foundation crumbled. And what did Elijah do? He pulled a cowardly lion and started hauling down the desert, ran so far that he completely exhausted himself. When he woke up, the Lord literally gave him food and was really calm and really comforting. And then what did Elijah do? He stood back up and started running again. Eventually ran to Mount Sinai, where it all started, where the, where the Jewish religion was birthed. And God showed up in this huge um, uh, special effects show, showed up in a, an earthquake and a massive wind and this huge fire. And then it said what the Lord did was answer him in a still small voice. It's like, what are you doing, buddy? And Elijah's one line sermon was, I'm alone. That was the lie that Jezebel exposed. I'm alone. Elijah thought that he was doing everything that he was doing by himself. He said, I alone stand as the man of God. And so the Lord said, man, get back to your family. I've got 7,000 people just like you. You are far from alone. But what did the Lord do? He exposed that lie, cleared out the debris, laid in a new foundation. I have 7,000 people just like you that have never bowed the knee. On top of that, I'm going to give you an assistant, and he is going to outperform you. I'm going to give you people in your life. And when the Lord established that foundation of truth, Elijah got to go back to Israel and conduct a ministry that he was supposed to be doing the whole time. Now, all of us in this room have flawed, cracked foundations. We have believed lies about ourselves. We have believed lies about each other, about the church. And every once in a while, the enemy will show up, notice that there is a crack in the foundation, and leverage information on that crack. And when we build our lives on a lie, when the storm comes, our entire house is ruined. But if we are building our lives on the foundation of truth, when the storm comes, the enemy can't get our, our ceiling to crack, right? All right, so we distance ourselves from each other because of past hurts. Well, how in the world do we, how do we get over that? How did Elijah get back into his ministry? Well, he started learning the truth. We have got to start exposing the lies in our hearts. We have got to start replacing them with the truth. The only way we can do that is if we start opening up our hearts towards each other. If we get into the word, if we, if we start sitting under good teaching. But if I'm hurt, if I am rejecting the church, if I'm walking away from the church, if I'm walking away from my family, and all of us have seen people, all of us have walked through times where our family members or ourselves have distanced themselves from the people that are going to help them. Well, you're not going to fix that on a Sunday morning. All of us are not going to sit in here and just go, hey, I understand that you've been hurt by the church. Uh, just get over it. Have you tried getting over it? That never works. I can't fix it all in a Sunday morning. I can't get over the years, the decades of harm, abuse that's probably legit. I can't get over that in a Sunday morning. But what can I do? I can find somebody that I connect to. The Lord has given you the ability to connect with somebody in this room. Get with them. If I can't expose my heart to an entire small group, get with somebody. So I've got some homework for us. And I think it's really going to be beneficial, as all teachers say. 
But I want you to write this down. So like, get out your phones, or if you have a photographic memory, great. Get out an offering envelope. And I've got homework for us. Homework assignment number one. Within the next 24 hours, I challenge you. If you don't do this, I still love you. But I challenge you in the next 24 hours to think of a friend that you have in this church body that you feel comfortable around, that you feel safe to be you, and I want you to thank them for creating that safe environment. So it takes a lot of love to create a safe environment. Find somebody that you connect to. I'm not talking about like, hey, I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I'm going to move in uh, like I've got my couch in the car, like I'm about to move in. Not, not that. Just somebody that you feel comfortable with. All of us know that social anxiety of like, I feel like I have to be somebody I'm not. And you get around friends that you can just kind of, <sighs> find somebody in the next 24 hours and just shoot them a text. Talk to them before they leave. Call them on the phone. Send them an email. If you feel the need to to message them on Facebook, message them on Facebook. Hey, I just want to thank you for being a good friend. That's it. Low intensity, all right? Low intensity. Homework assignment number two. In the next seven days, I want you to get something on the calendar that you can connect with that person a little bit more. I'm not saying that you have to meet in the next seven days, but just get something on the calendar. This might look like, hey, can we go grab coffee? Hey, can we go out to lunch? Hey, the church is cooking on Wednesday night. Can I sit in front of you at your table on a Wednesday night? Can I call you on the phone? Can I go to a small group with you? Can we sit next to each other like on some Sunday? Again, low intensity. You don't have to do something in the next seven days, but get something on the calendar because if it never gets on the calendar, it never happens. Reach out in the next seven days and make a plan to connect with somebody And in the next four weeks, by this time next month, I want you to try to open up your thoughts to that person that you trust and let them just see some of the things that are rattling around in your head. I'm not saying that you have to have this counseling moment that you have like a goodwill hunting of like all of your life is being cathartically expressed via tears and snot. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying over the next four weeks, Try to let somebody into your thought process. The same thing that John Nash did. I don't know if what I'm experiencing is true. Let me find somebody that I trust. Hey, do you see this person? Hey, is this person real? Hey, these are thoughts that I think about myself. What do you think? Hey, these are thoughts that I think about my wife, about my kids, about my job, about my destiny, about my giftings. What do you think? And eventually, that connection that we make in the body of Christ will strengthen and expose truth and lies faster than any sermon series, faster than any self-help book, because we can all lie to personality tests. We can all lie to the random buzzfeed of like, hey, what kind of cheese are you? We can all lie to everybody on the internet. It is hard once we start opening up our heart, opening up our head to the people in this room, it is hard to keep that lie going. And I just, my, my last point, I want to let you know, you don't feel the pressure to be anybody that you're not in this room. Other people in the world might put that pressure on you. I can't speak for everybody in this room, but to me, you don't ever feel like you have to act 
like you've got it all together. You don't have to act like you're spiritual. Like when you come up to me, I don't need you to quote Bible verses. I need you to be you. Your imagination of what you need to be around me doesn't exist. You are the gift that God has to this body. See, Paul says in 2 Corinthians that he has taken the ministry of reconciliation, the gospel message itself, and he has hidden it in jars of clay. Now, when we put a whole bunch of pretty wrapping paper around that jar of clay, because sometimes the jar of clay looks a little ugly, when we wrap and we hermetically seal and we Tupperware and we duct tape around that jar of clay, what is inside can't get out. And I know that it's scary, and I stand up here, I am chief among sinners on this point. It is hard for me to completely be myself sometimes because I feel the pressure to perform. But I want to let you know, I love you, not your, not your alter ego. We love you. You feel free to be yourself. So in the next 24 hours, I want you to thank a friend for being in your life because it takes effort to put up with us. And we need to thank our friends for putting up with us. In the next 24 hours, or in the next seven days, I want us to get something on the calendar, make plans to spend time with somebody that you feel comfortable with. And then in the next four weeks, by this time next month, I want you to start opening up your heart, opening up your mind, opening up your thought process to one of your friends. So let me pray for us. We've got um, sandwiches out there. I want you to eat like put some, uh, put some food in your mouth. It improves your heart. It improves your mind. I think it improves us spiritually when we put food in our mouths, obviously. So Father, um, we, we give you permission and we ask you to expo- expose the flawed logic and the false assumptions that we have developed about ourselves, about our church, about our destiny, about our giftings, about you, God. I pray that over the next few weeks, Lord, that you would expose truth in our lives, God. Father, open up my eyes just the same way that scales dropped off of uh, Paul's eyes when he saw you for the, or, uh, when he uh, came into his ministry. God, let the scales drop off our eyes that we can perceive you, perceive ourselves and our friends and family the way that you see us, God. Father, I pray that you would give every person in this room courage to lay down the costumes of false lives, to lay down the lies that we've been telling each other and ourselves for decades. Lord, I pray for for genuine relationships to grow and to flourish in this church like you've already done, God. Now, we're not asking you to do something that you don't already do all the time, God. Lord, I ask for friendships, Lord, for every person in this room that can't think of one person that they feel comfortable or themselves with. Father, your word promises that you take the lonely and you place them in families. Not my word, not what I brought to the table. God, your promise to us that you have taken the lonely and placed in families. So Lord, we combat the lie of the enemy that there is anybody, that there is one orphan in this room. Father, and we choose to believe what your word says over us, that there is a family that welcomes us and accepts us. Might not be our friend circle, might not be our biological family, but there is a family that accepts every one of us. 
Father, we bless you. I pray that you would bless us this week. God, everybody that's struggling with their jobs, everybody that's struggling with family issues, with health issues, Lord, we ask for your intervention, and Lord, that you would bless us this week, God. Head and shoulders above anybody else. God, creative solutions to the world's problems. In Jesus' name, amen.